morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the lead pastors here. Uh, we're in a series called Analog, and so I'll, I'll just back up a little bit. Uh, Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, and so what we decided to do was take a quick jump into Acts, which is this history book in the Bible that talks about the formation of the early church. And so uh, one of the things that we discussed when we started this series is that churches look a lot different around the country and around the world. Uh, they do things a little bit differently. You've been in different churches. You've seen that they're not all the same, and, and maybe they focus on different things and have different emphasis and so on and so forth. But it is actually really important to ensure that there are some foundational items that the Bible talks about churches doing and having and being. And if we don't have those or if we place an emphasis on other things before those things, that, that we, we may actually have our priorities mixed up. And so what we wanted to do is in the light of Jesus' resurrection, so right after Easter, is take a look at what the early church did. And so if you're not familiar with what happened, there's about 120 disciples in the upper room, and then the day of Pentecost comes, and the Holy Spirit pours out, and 3,000 men come to Christ at once. And so we go from 120 or so people to 3,120, which is a big increase, I'm not a math major, but it's a lot. And then they have to figure out how to do life together and how to do church together and what is it gonna look like. And so in week one, because we're in Acts 2, 42 through 47, it's just a few verses where we're looking at this early church. And we've been in that for, this will be the third week. In week one, we looked at this large assembly so every week, these believers were all gathering in the temple together, uh, and they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And so we just spent some time. What does it mean to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? What does it mean? Like, why do we gather here once a week? And what is the purpose of it? Why does corporate worship matter? Why does the proclamation of the word of God matter to the assembly? I mean, why do we need We're already saved. Why do we need to hear the gospel? So we talked about why that's so important and how we come expectant to see the Holy Spirit move when we come into this place, watch him not only change us, but change the people around us so we can continue to be encouraged and stirred up to good works by what God is doing in the people in the pew next to us. And so that was week one. And then, uh, you know, and we, we, we talked about a few other things, like uh, how to be engaged when we come in and we hear the word proclaimed, how to be engaged in worship, how to be engaged in this teaching. And then in week two, we looked at the small gathering, or what we call the kitchen table. And so in Acts 2, 42 through 47, they're, they're meeting in homes all the time, throughout the week. They're breaking bread together. They're observing the Lord's uh, Supper together. Uh, they're, they're, they're encouraging one another. They're holding each other accountable. They're helping one another. And so we looked at what does it look like to do life together? Why is 90 minutes once a week probably not enough to do the Christian life? And so we took a pretty heavy look at that last week. Uh, before first service, I was talking to my buddy Richard, and he ran into a guy uh, who, who was doing like street evangelism, and he was just you know, telling people the gospel. And so he sits there, and he's sharing with Richard, and he's telling him the gospel, and they're talking. So finally Richard says, hey, what church do you go to? He says, oh, I don't go to church. I don't need church. He's like, oh, really? You don't need church? He's like, no, you can have a relationship with Jesus and not go to church. And I'm, you know, he told me that. I was like, well, yeah, I mean, you can be married and live in a different state, but let me be honest, it don't go real well. You could do it, but should you do it? This solo Christian life is ridiculous. John Wesley, one of the forefathers of the church, said the most unchristian thing you can do is be a solitary Christian. 
It's counter to everything we read in the formation of the early church and how dependable they, uh, dependent they were on one another and how intimately involved they were in each other's lives. And so today we're going to um, take a, another step and another look at Acts 2, 42 through 47. We're going to look at something else. Now, before I, we get into this, I want to explain this, this phenomenon that happens in uh, spiritual life and, and, and in, in Christianity, particularly, we've seen this historically. It's this idea of reductivism. Reductivism is uh, probably just a, a fancy word for oversimplifying things. And we have a tendency as people to oversimplify, and, and we can go too far with that. It's nice to, to sum something up and, 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 and have like a nice catchphrase or something, but oftentimes when we attempt to oversimplify, we, we miss the nuance that is some of the uh, mystery of, of the gospel, some of the importance of what we do. So for instance, we can, uh, in week one, we can look at the assembly and we can understand that it's important and why it's important, the heart, or the heart behind coming together. But if you oversimplified too far, you could end up in this idea of like, well, as long as I show up on Sunday and check that box, things are, me and God are good. No, you just, we just missed it, right? We just oversimplified And we do the same thing in the small groups, right? The small group is really effective when... I'm opening my life up and I'm living this vulnerable life with all of its mess and all of its struggles and all of the, the ups and downs of life with other people and we're encouraging one another, we're doing life together. But man, if I oversimplify too far, it's like, well, as long as I you know, show up every once in a while and check in with people and we do a little Bible study, you know, we're good. Well, we just missed it. But today we're gonna talk about something else that's happening in Acts 2, 42 through 47. We're gonna talk about this idea of generosity because it's in here. And we want to un unpack it and look at what it is. But if we're not careful, this is maybe one of the most cynical reactions to the Christian life is this idea that churches are just after my money. And I, and I had a brother-in-law who didn't go to church for years. And I used to ask him, like, I don't understand. You, why don't you go to church? And he's like, well, churches, man, every time I go, they just, they just want my money. And I, and I started to think about that. I go, you know, I actually think that's the opposite. I think in American church, we're so afraid to offend you that we don't ever talk about your money, which is actually kind of weird. So it's really ironic that you're not going to church because you think they're going to talk about money when in fact they're not talking about money because they're afraid you wouldn't go. I don't think that happens at all. Let me read you what it says in Acts 40, uh, 2, 42 through 47. And then I think you're going to see some stuff today um, that's really going to explain some tendencies that you and I have when it comes to living a Christian life in a broken world. All right. Acts 2, 42 through 47 says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That, in and of itself, by the way, is pretty crazy considering how different those people were at Pentecost. But then it gets crazier. You ready for 45? Put your seatbelt on. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That is wild, y'all. We're going to cover that in a minute. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes... They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In the Bible, if we, we get, start at the Bible of Genesis and we get all the way to Revelation, there are roughly, really close to 500 verses about prayer. 
There's about 500 different verses in the Bible that, that talk about you and I praying. And actually, if we start counting up verses about faith, there's just a couple less, but almost 500 verses in the Bible about us having faith, which kind of makes sense that those correlate, right? You kind of need faith to pray. It makes sense. But did you know there's over 2,000 verses on money? That's a lot. That's a lot more. That's, in fact, that's more than prayer and faith combined. One out of every 10 verses in the New Testament deals with money. 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus tells during his ministry are about money. 25%, one quarter of all of Jesus' teaching dealt with money. Now, if I change the sermon structure here to one out of every four sermons being about money, y'all would be like, listen, pastor. But I'd actually be pretty reflective of where Jesus spent his time and his attention. Now, we don't. Why? Because in American culture, we're, we're actually so concerned that you might think we're one of those prosperity gospel preachers or one of those Creflo Dollar dudes. Um, who's the guy in uh, Texas? He got like five planes. He has his own personal airport, but it's not big enough for the planes that he bought. So he has a hangar at another airport. He has a helicopter from his airport that takes him to the... We know that's wrong. We know that's evil. God will deal with him someday. But the rest of us are so concerned about maybe offending you that we stop talking about the things that Jesus talks about. Well, that's a problem. Why does Jesus talk about and teach on money so much? Actually, you know what's really interesting? Jesus spends a quarter of his teaching on money, and he never asks for money once. Well, if, he, if he's not asking for money, why is he talking about it all the time? We're going to answer this question today. What does it mean to be generous? And why does Jesus care about it so much? What does it mean to be generous? And why does Jesus care about it so much? In order to really understand generosity uh, and what's going on here and, and what uh, Jesus is talking about, what's happening in Acts 2, um, I'm going to have to give you a little bit of a background on why this topic is so common in Jesus' teaching and in the Bible. So uh, if we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, if you're not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's an entire sermon from Jesus, and if you've uh, read that at all, you'll understand kind of what I mean. It's Jesus just like ruthlessly going after your heart. I mean, like no, pulling no punches. He is going right after your heart. And so he's actually taking all of the actions and symptoms of things you might say, see, and so like, that's not actually the important thing. He goes right to the root cause, and he's drilling down on your heart over and over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what the gospel is about. That, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the way that you and I have been saved, our salvation, the heart of that is, is Jesus wanting our heart. Our heart and the condition of our heart matters when it comes to worship. That was what we talked about two weeks ago. Our heart and the condition of our heart matters when it comes to small community. That's what we talked about last week. So, so Jesus is going to, in the Sermon on the Mount, continue to drive into this sort of root cause issue. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he's gonna, one of the things he's going to tackle is material things or money and how easily it takes control of our heart. Flip over in your Bibles to Matthew 6, 
19 through 21. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So we just got a do not. This is a command to not do something. And now we're going to get something we should do. Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So we've gotten what not to do and what we should do. And verse 21, he's going to tell us why. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is Jesus essentially saying right here? He's saying, listen to me, he's saying, don't get so focused on material things that you think you're in control. Do you see that? Because not only does he say, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth, then he says kind of in that statement, you know, where moths and rust destroy, where thieves can take, he's, he's essentially saying, listen, you don't have as much control as you think you have. You, you think if you earn more money, if you get more things, if you accumulate more stuff, suddenly you have control? You don't even control if thieves steal your stuff. If moths come and eat your clothes up, get real. You don't have as much control as you think you do. Part of the Christian life of living in this broken world is that you and I are trapped somewhere between Ecclesiastes and Job. Let me explain what that means. Uh, Ecclesiastes is written by the king, uh, King Solomon. King Solomon was the richest man that ever lived. He was Elon Musk before there was an Elon Musk. He was a multi, 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 multi billionaire. He ruled a massive kingdom. And because he was so wealthy and so wise and so powerful, he tried every earthly pursuit there was to find satisfaction. He threw parties, and when the parties weren't big enough, he threw bigger parties. He threw a party where they, they slaughtered 6,000 cattle to feed the people. Let me just submit to you, I don't care how big of a shindig you've thrown, you never went and killed 6,000 cows to feed the crowd. Big parties. They never satisfied. He tried women. When I say he tried women, he had like, like 300 wives and 500 concubines. Like he tried them. Never satisfied. He tries and tries and tries every earthly pursuit. And then he ends up writing Ecclesiastes. If you've ever read, read the book, it's depressing. Like be careful. You'll need two cups of coffee to read that bad boy. Because he says everything under the sun is vanity. It's folly. It doesn't satisfy. And then you go to Job. Job had everything taken from him. And I mean everything. All of his family, all of his wealth, all of his possessions, even his physical health and his friends turned against him. Everything. And we're caught somewhere in between. Because none of us has had it as bad as Job and none of us is ever going to be Solomon. And so we're caught in this trap in between the two in this fallen world that we, we get this mindset that if I just had a little bit more, things would be better. You ever think that? If I just could make a little bit more, if I could just have a little bit more financial stability, if I could just have a little bit more security, if I could make a little bit more money, a little more, more time off, a little better relationship, if I could just have a little bit more, then things would be good. See, th things aren't really good right now. I'm not really satisfied and content right now, but if I could just get a little more, then it would be better. And it's a lie. Do you hear me? It's a lie. The cake is a lie. It is a lie. 
It never actually gets better. You're all the way to Solomon, who will never be there, will never be that rich, will never be that wealthy, and he's depressed. It'll never be that good. No amount of money can control your physical health. Death comes for, for us all. No amount of money actually changes your relational health. There are very, 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 very wealthy people that have the most dysfunctional relationships you've ever seen. You can't buy relational health. You can't buy physical health. You can't buy your way to peace. You can't buy your way to happiness. You cannot buy your way out of depression. You can't control these things simply by getting more money. The actual uh, definition for greed is an inordinate desire for material things. And what is, creeps into the heart of all of us when we get into this cycle of believing that if I could just accumulate a little bit more of blank, whatever blank is, that things would then be good is an inordinate desire for that thing. And that actually is the definition of greed. The problem with greed is that nobody thinks they're greedy. You don't think you're greedy. You all know somebody that's greedy. Isn't that weird how that works? We all know someone that's greedy, but it's not us. Clearly, it's so-and-so. They're a little bit more lavish. They spend a little bit more. They waste a little bit more, whatever it is, right? In your mind, you're just, you're pretty sure they're the definition of greedy, and you're not. In reality, greed's at the center of all of our hearts, See, there's this thing about material goods, possessions, uh, stuff. Let's just call it stuff. Anyone got some stuff? Stuff? You got stuff? I got stuff. I got some stuff. Everybody likes their stuff. It's this thing about stuff, money, whatever, that is just, it's sneaky. It crawls in and it gets a hold of your heart. And you don't think it does, but it always does. It's very, I have this, uh, we have two dogs, and one of our dogs is about this 30-pound French Bulldog, okay? Ugly as snot. And uh, you guys have seen them. They look like they got their faces smashed. And they can't breathe normal. Anyways, her name's Mika. And Mika is the most spoiled dog on earth. And Mika likes to sneak into our bedroom when we're sleeping and lay on our chest. If you've ever had 30 pounds deposited on your chest while you're sleeping, it is not a fun experience. So, so like we're constantly like trying to put stuff up, but if you're not careful, if you leave the baby gate down, we literally have to put a baby gate up, that dog will sneak into my room and lay on my chest. And you know what? Material things do the same thing too. You see, when you buy something, when you get something, when you accumulate something, it's not a bad thing in and of itself. It's probably a good thing. In fact, maybe it's a blessing from the Lord, but it has this way, if you're not careful, of creeping in and grabbing hold of your heart, because that's what stuff does. My first car was a 1984 Celica. <laughs> that's right. Well, I don't think the odometer even worked anymore. I mean, we just run out of numbers. And, uh, you know, my grandpa had, like, helped rebuild. We got out of a junkyard. Oh, imagine. And it was a good car, but uh, it, it was really lucky for us that we lived up on the east side, and we were on a hill, because I would park it, so it pointed downhill, because... 
Toyota Celicas had a problem with the alternators. It didn't matter how many times I replaced the alternator, three times, uh, they would die and you couldn't start the car, but it's fine because what you do is you just put it in first and, and, and then you pop the clutch and it would start on the way down. And there's a bunch of you that are wondering what a clutch is. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to try to explain that. It's, yeah, okay. But the thing about it is it drove, it got me where I wanted to go. I never had to think about it. And then I bought a new car. And all of a sudden, I had to think about all these things that I never had to think about before. Like, when had I last waxed it? Celica didn't care. <laughs> Did I park far enough away from all the other cars? Celica didn't care. Better not drive off into the dirt at all, get really dusty. Celica didn't care. Like, the car was a blessing from God, but all of a sudden, it was taking my time and my attention and my affection and my energy. And like, what in the world? I bought you because I wanted a new car, not because I wanted you to own me. It's kind of weird how stuff works. I'm not telling you to don't get a car. I'm not telling you not to take care of the things you have. But, well, here's what I am telling you, that when you get stuff, be careful stuff don't get you. When you get stuff, be careful it don't get you. Because this just has a way of doing that. So Jesus tells us, don't lay up, don't put faith, don't put trust in material things. Like it's going to give you control, like it's going to save you, but instead do something else. And here's what he says. He says, lay up treasures in heaven. Now, he's essentially saying, invest in heaven. Invest in heaven. You ever think about there's no real instruction manual for that? Like, uh, there's a lot of people that want to sell you 401ks. I had no one talking to me a lot about investing in heaven right now. We've got a lot of people running around giving you advice about like stocks and 401ks and Bitcoin and the energy sector and the tech sector. What does it look like to invest in kingdom currency? In kingdom coin. You know the thing about kingdom currency is it never has a dip. You don't got to sit around watching the news in the stock market to wonder what the value is. It never goes down. You never short kingdom coin. All it does is multiply. But how do you get it? How do you invest in heaven? Well, what we're going to find as we open the Bible and we continue to look at what Jesus would say, what the apostles would explain to the churches, what we're going to end up with, kind of a spoiler alert here, it's going to be generosity. But to get there, we've got to go way, way back to explain how we end up at generosity. We're going to have to go back to the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis because before we even have the Mosaic Law, so we get the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, and the Levitical Law, and all of those things from the Old Testament. We don't get that until Moses leads the people out of Egypt. But way before that, all the way back in Genesis 14, there's a guy named Abram. And Abram has this really interesting story that just kind of pops out of nowhere, and you only get it for one chapter. It's in Genesis 14. He's in a battle, and he wins the battle, and he ends up with a lot of reward from that battle. And there's a guy that's the king of Salem. His name is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek has this really interesting thing about him. He is both the priest of God and he's a king. It's the only time in the Bible until Jesus that we see someone hold both roles of king and priest. And so Abram is fairly 
I was going to say assertive. He's almost aggressive with Melchizedek, telling him that he has to give him the best 10% of everything that he just won in this battle. And his reasoning for that is that he wants to honor God. He wants to honor God. And that is the beginning of what we then see later and then throughout Scripture explained to us as this idea of a tithe or one-tenth. The tithe is instituted later in the uh, Mosaic law as a way for the people to show obedience to God and to honor God. They take the first 10%, the best 10% of what they have, and they give it to the Levites, which is to the temple to use. And we see that all the way through the Old Testament. In fact, when we get to Malachi, when people have forgotten the tithe, literally God's like, are you robbing me? which is a whole nother conversation that sounds really devastating that I don't want to get into. But I, um, I heard an argument about three weeks ago. Someone was asking, does the tithe still exist? Because there's a little bit of a debate that the tithe was kind of this Old Testament thing. And that when Jesus came, in the same way we don't follow some of the Old Testament stuff like Levitical law and ceremonial sacrifices and stuff, that we don't need to, that the tithe's kind of gone. In fact, in Acts 2, we're going to study here in a second, we don't see the tithe. We see something very different. And so there's a debate sort of back and forth. Does the tithe still exist? I will tell you that for me and my family, we believe the Bible says that tithe still exists. And there's two fundamental reasons. One, because Abraham is tithing before it's ever part of the Old Testament law. That's number one. But number two, there's a really quick phrase, just a really quick story in the middle of a rebuke that Jesus has in Matthew 23. It's Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, and he says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus, doing what he kind of does all the time, is pointing out a heart issue to the Pharisees. He's saying, hey, you're, you're doing these religious things, but, but there's no heart behind it and you're missing the point. Okay, so that's, that's important. That's the critical part of the verse. But don't miss the other part of the verse. Jesus says, you should also be tithing. <laughs> you shouldn't miss the reason for it. You shouldn't miss justice and mercy, but you should also tithe. And so one of the convictions that my family and I have, why we have continued to believe that the tithe is something that we're all called to as believers, is that Jesus was pro-tithe. And so we tithe. And what does that mean for us? That means when we get our income, our paycheck, we take the first 10%. Before we give any to the government, I say give it to the government. The government takes it, let's be honest. And we give it to our local church, wherever the local body is that we invest in, that we call home. That's where we give it. And we do that first. And it's the starting point for us, not the ending point. It's not the ending point of generosity. It's actually the beginning of obedience that leads to generosity. You know what's crazy is I grew up in a home where my parents tithed and they had absolutely no money. I mean, they were broke, broke. And they tithed. Like, I was going to say religiously, but that's redundant. They always tithed first, even when there was no money. They tithed anyways. Um, and they couldn't pay bills. And God always provided. Always provided. I mean, there are two separate instances in which my, my parents could not pay the bills could not pay the electric bill, could not, like it was not going to happen. And both times, randomly, years apart, different people, they got a letter in the mail, the $1,000 check. 
from people they hadn't talked to in years and just said, I was praying and I felt the Lord lead me to send this to you. I saw all of that testimony and then I grew up, became a Christian and didn't tithe. Did that tell you anything about greed? Do you know the hardest, hardest time to tithe? The first time. The first time you suddenly look at your little pie of resources and go, how am I going to live on 10% less than this? It's not even going to be possible. It's impossible. I mean, I know God's powerful, but there's no possible way that he could deal with me having 10% less. I know he fed 5,000 with some loaves and some fishes, but this, this bill is clearly too much. It sounds funny when we say it that way. But you know what the tithe is? Beyond obedience, beyond honoring God, really, if you think about tithe, tithe is just a trust issue. Does God provide for me, or am I the master of my own world? Do you see how that's a heart issue, a control issue? Think about it this way. Um, what I like the most about having money or possessions or things is that I control them. And when suddenly I'm going to give back, even if I can't see how this is going to work, I'm having to put faith in God providing in a way that I can't control myself. And I want control. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that first sin, what was the promise to Eve? Was it, hey, this apple is going to be really delicious and you're going to be, you're going to look more beautiful if you eat it? No. The promise was you could be like God. That's what we do with money. We want money so we can control things, so we can be our own gods. Because I don't want to give over control of things to God. Right in the middle of even just this first act of obedience is a heart issue of me having to put trust in God over trust in money. But then we're going to get to Acts 2, and it's going to get really wild. Because in Acts 2, it's not about tithe at all. It's something radically different. Like you see that in Acts, right? I mean, we, we get over to Acts, and they're doing, they're doing weird stuff. No one's talking about tithe here. Here's what it says in verse 45. Why don't you just read this, okay? Because this... It sounds a little suspect, if we're being honest. And they were selling, this is verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. If you had a neighbor and you were like, I don't know what your neighbor's name is, Bill. Bill, sounds like a good neighbor name. Yesterday, you had two cars in the driveway. And today, you only have one. What's going on? And Bill was like, hey, there's some people in my church that have been really struggling with cancer treatment, and their medical bills have piled up, but they couldn't pay them. And we have two cars, they didn't really need it. So we sold a car and paid their bills off. Let's be real honest. On the surface, you might go, oh, how admirable. Inside, you're like, cult, it's a cult. <laughs> Stay away from Bill, kids. Don't go past the property line. We got some stuff going on over there. No one does that. You sold your car? 
social services in the Roman Empire? They didn't have welfare. They didn't have social security. They didn't have Medicare. You know who cared for the least of these? The church did. You and I did. Before governments ever stepped in with government programs, I was on the church. Do you know where most of the hospitals and orphanages in this country were founded? The church. Christians founded those. The government didn't do that. Government came after. Government's extra. That's on the church. It was on us. Because it's a heart issue. Because the church follows the lead of Jesus and lives a generous life. The generosity was well beyond tithe. Tithe was this act of obedience to honor God that existed for thousands of years. But then in the light of the cross, everything changed. All of a sudden, generosity was me finding some way to positively impact other people with my time, my money, my possessions. It wasn't even generosity until it actually changed my, my way of living. Like, like if I'm just giving, it doesn't even have an impact on me. I'm just, I'm just giving out of the extra. We, I'm not even going to call that generous. Generous is when like I have to make a sacrifice in order to give something. Paul has to explain this. So, so the Apostle Paul, you know, he, he helps plant all these churches all around the New Testament world, and he's, he's training them and their pastors and trying to encourage them and explaining the words of Jesus because obviously they're very forgetful. And so he goes to this church in Corinth, and he says, hey, there's been a famine in another country, and they're starving. Can you give extra? Right? It's like taking an offering. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. And then while he's not there, some people sneak into the church and they convince the church like, man, we don't need to support those people. That probably doesn't sound familiar to you at all because we don't do anything political here. <clears throat> we, don't, we don't need to support those people. And so they're going to renege on the, on the offering. And so he's like, you don't get it. It's, this is, you don't get it. I got it. So he writes them a letter, 2 Corinthians. He writes them a letter and he sends it. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 8, says this, Ready? He's trying to teach. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. What is he talking about? Kingdom currency. Investing in the kingdom. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his, where? Heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Hmm. Wish that word wasn't there. God loves a reluctant giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So Paul's not talking about tithe. We're, he's past that. He's talking about taking up this offering for people in another country that they don't even know and did you see how serious he is? Not about getting the money, but about their heart. Like he's addressing it right here. Listen, this is not, I'm not trying to guilt you into this. I'm trying to get you to understand that the heart of Christ was generous. He says cheerful. Do you know, the actual word cheerful in Greek is, um, is the word uh, hilarion, hilarion. And hilarion is the root of our word hilarious. He's actually saying, man, you should, be, you should be laughing and excited and happy at the opportunity to give your money away. Is that normal? Because I'll tell you right now, 
If you tell me it's normal, you're lying. It's not normal. Nobody wakes up and is like, man, I went on a bender last night. I just gave all my money away. You don't do that. You, you go on a bender and go on a shopping spree for yourself. You'll buy a car when you didn't need one. You'll buy a second house. We do a lot. We'll go, we'll go uh, eat way too much and wake up the next morning like, wow. Nobody just accidentally is like, man, I gave so much. I just so generous last night. That doesn't happen. It's not normal. It's abnormal. It's weird. Maybe a little cultish. Can you imagine having this much fun blessing people? Not because you had extra, because they didn't. They were poor too. You'd be excited to bless someone else. And that's the type of attitude that we're seeing in Acts 2. They are excited. They are taking their stuff, selling it, just to go meet needs and help people as they see need. And it doesn't make sense. Like, we, just, we should be honest about this. It doesn't make sense. Because kingdom values never make sense to a fallen world. Jesus' words did not make sense. <laughs> if the government tried to do this, if the government tried to like run in and take all your stuff so they could redistribute it, <clears throat> can I just tell you how that would go in America? Right, it's about the most un-American thing you could do. We call that socialism. Communism, how dare you? I mean, in some sense, yeah, because we would be under compulsion, right? We'd be forced to do that. But listen, listen to me. If the government does it, we would call it bad. But when the body of Christ does it, compelled only by the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ and the work that the Holy Spirit is doing on our hearts, when the church does it, we don't call that socialism. We call that a healthy church. A healthy church looking for opportunities to meet needs. It, just as a side note, do you see how, how devastating some of the, the, the political and social media type of drama can be on the church? Uh, it, can, it can look at something the church voluntarily wanted to do to bless people and call it something negative and make you think less of it. I actually, a couple years ago, we got an anonymous letter about our coffee shop. We had decided to stop charging a dollar or whatever for the drinks. We just, we just want to give it away and bless people when they came and everything. And we, someone got mad at us for it and told us we were running a communist coffee shop because we weren't charging money for it. And I was like, turn off Fox News, read your Bible. We gave everything away in here. And we were excited to do it. And you're mad because you didn't get charged a dollar at the coffee shop? Just put it in the offering basket. This is wild. Let me go back to Matthew 6. Let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. We read Paul's words to the church in Corinth and 2 Corinthians, but let me just go back and tie this back to Matthew 6. What is Jesus saying? What is Paul trying to reinforce at the church in Corinth? What is happening in Acts? Here's the number one. Don't Put your trust in material things. And number two, work earnestly to earn heavenly treasures. Don't put your trust in material things and work earnestly to earn heavenly treasures. Now, how do we earn heavenly treasures? Like, like I know you probably have a lot of questions. I'm just one of those people that has a lot of questions. I read something like this and I'm like, what exactly is the pay rate and return on kingdom labor? Like, are we talking about like $15 per century? How does this work? Can, can we talk about the benefits package at all? 
Like, um, there's no health care in heaven. Well, there's no sickness or death, so there doesn't have to be any health care. I have questions, right? How do, we, how do we earn? How do we store up, make a... See, Jesus was absolutely cares about your retirement, just not the one you think about. It's the other one. The, the Apostle Paul has a, a protege that he's mentoring, a young pastor named Timothy. And he writes him to explain this so that he can deal with his congregation in the same way. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. <clears throat> Listen to what he says. He's telling Timothy, hey, hey, young pastor, you're gonna have to deal with this in your congregation. Here's the way I need you to do it. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, okay, hold on, hold on. Most of the time, when I say the word rich, you turn off your ears. Because you don't think you're rich in the same way that you don't think you're greedy. Um, Two billion people on earth today lack access to safely managed drinking water. Two billion people. 3.6 billion people, roughly half of the earth, do not have access to safely managed sanitation in their home. If you're sitting here today, you're rich. By the world's standards, you're rich. You're in this, this top percentile if you live here. If you live in America, I mean, our minimum wage, people die for in a lot of countries. They work for such, such little amounts in China. It's so depressing that they had to put up suicide nets around their buildings because of the number of people jumping out of the building killing themselves, okay? You're rich. As for the rich in this age, say me. It's you, it's me. We're wealthy according to the world standards. This isn't to somebody else. This is to you and me. As for the rich in this present age, charge them... Not to be haughty, that's prideful, nor, here it is, to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Have you ever thought about the fact that God didn't have to actually make food taste different all tasted like chicken (laughs) everything or oatmeal or nothing I got COVID a while back and everything tasted the same and I was like this is awful but it doesn't it tastes delicious and you can taste the difference that's a blessing listen to me that's a blessing all the creative people that we we have around us that create beautiful things that's a blessing We couldn't have to do that. He loves you. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works and ready to, uh, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
You and I are the target of these verses. Here's what we're not to do. You and I, we are not to be prideful over the blessings that we have, and we are not to put our trust in any of our possessions or our money. But instead, we are to be rich in good works. We're to serve in the church and outside of the church. We're to serve. We're to earnestly serve, not to earn a salvation, but in light of salvation, in the shadow of the cross, because of the resurrection, we're to serve people. We're to be generous. And we're to be ready to share. What does ready to share mean? Man, we are looking for opportunities to give away our stuff. You're like, well, I'm not sure I'm down with that one, Pastor. I know it's the problem. We're greedy and we're not supposed to be. It's a problem. The Bible says we should try to outdo one another showing honor. So it's a competition and I want to win, right? So we want to outdo one another showing honor to people and we want to be on the lookout to be generous. Where is their need that I can respond to? Let's try a little, let's try a little heart work today. Let's, let's do a little thought exercise. Okay, close your eyes. Jessica Michael told me it works with kids. Close your eyes. All right, here we go. What would it look like if my heart's desire was to give everything away? Like all I lived for was not to get more or be stable or anything else. My heart's desire was to live on less and less and less resources so I could give more and more and more away. Now, here's the problem with your thinking this, right? At least here's the problem when I tried to do it. I'm thinking this and intellectually I'm like, well, it could be good. But I don't want to do it. I don't have a desire for that. Intellectually, I could say, man, that sounds like it could be kind of freeing, could be kind of liberating, but I don't desire that. My heart doesn't want that. If I'm being really honest, I... I... Listen, we want to be honest. We're a church, as, as a church, as a culture, we, we, we want to care, we care a lot more about being honest than looking righteous. There are churches where looking righteous is a big deal, and this clearly isn't one of them, or they would not let me up here. The problem with wanting to look righteous is that usually it means we have to be less honest. For me to look righteous and not look like the total mess that I am I'm going to have to make up a fake version of myself that's not very truthful, that looks like it has it all together. Looking righteous causes me to do some really weird stuff. I, I, I lack authenticity. I lack vulnerability to look righteous. It's what pins you to the pew during the invitation. So instead of getting up for prayer, for repentance, for counsel, we just, oh, that might send the wrong message. People might say something. We want to be honest. And if I'm being really honest, I don't want to give stuff away. If I'm being honest, the problem is that even when I get to the point where I, where I, I feel like God has really compelled me to begin to give stuff away and I'm trying to live this life that's more generous, stuff creeps back in my life and it puts its claws on my heart. I know people that genuinely 
desire to give everything that they have away. They are living a life like that. And I want to know, man, what is it going to take in my life to want to do that? Not just to do it, to want to do it, to be cheerful doing it. What does that look like? What does it mean to be generous? And why does Jesus care so much about it? Here's why. I think one of the reasons that we continue to see a push toward generosity, the reason it's talked about the most in the Bible, the reason we have tithe in the very beginning. You, you guys realize we didn't need tithe, right? Like God didn't need your money to fund a church. I've said this before, but guys, when the rule is actually instituted in the Mosaic law, he is literally feeding a million people by raining food down from heaven. He, you think he needed your, your resources? have done anything he wanted. He just split open the Red Sea. There was just a pillar of fire. There's a cloud. He just killed an army. He's feeding people by just throwing food out of the air. He didn't need your tithe to run ministry. He needs your tithe because he wants your heart. He needs your tithe because it'll take you over. It'll eat you alive. We fight greed by giving our things away. You're like, man, I hate that. Me too. But we fight greed by giving our things away. Our money, our time, our possessions. When you miss that Jesus is after your heart, it's easy to misunderstand why some of the things are in the Bible that are in the Bible. Listen to me. Jesus is jealous over you. Jealous. He's so jealous over your heart, over your affection. He refuses to share you. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? In the same way that, like, when you get married, you don't share your spouse anymore. <laughs> like, you know, like, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. That's my spouse. He wants your adoration and your affection and your heart, and he wants top billing. He wants primary seat. And when other stuff tries to creep into that seat, like that stupid French bald dog tries to creep in and sit on my chest, he's like, no. And we fight that greed. We fight that tendency to put our trust in material things and in possessions by learning to live a life of generosity and giving it away. And it doesn't start easy. I'll be really honest. It starts really reluctantly. And when it starts, rarely are we cheerful about it. And he grows that in us. He transforms us and changes us. Here's what you come to realize as you begin to learn that we're called to a life of generosity, is that this is actually the example of the gospel. Of all the ways that God could have saved us from our sin, the way he chose was for Jesus, his son, to come and give himself away. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? His body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. The very model of salvation, the very model of the gospel is one of generosity in which Jesus, God, would come to earth and give himself to us so that we could learn what it looks like as we follow Jesus to live a life of generosity. What is, if you didn't have to tell anybody, what is, that one, what is the thing in your life you're the most reluctant to give away? Maybe it's money, maybe it's job, maybe it's time, maybe it's a relationship, whatever it is. Like, what's the thing that you're most reluctant? Like, oh, man, I'm, mm, you're holding on to. I just want you to consider for a moment, it's possible that that thing has become an idol. 
And if it's taken over the top priority in your life, if it's taken over the spot that Jesus is supposed to sit in, his throne, he's going to be jealous over it. It might be an idol. I have a couple challenges for you today. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. Um, If you do not today, as of today, if you do not tithe to your local church, and what I mean by that is, if you're a guest here, if you're visiting here, I'm not asking you to tithe here. That's not actually what the Bible would tell you to do either. The Bible would tell you that you would take the first 10% of what comes in and you would give that back to the local body that you're part of, that is pouring into you and discipling you, that is your community. And so if you don't do that today, regardless of what church you go to, I want you to sit down with your significant other, your accountability group, your community group, whomever, and over the course of this week, I just want you to talk to them and pray with them about what it looks like to beginning, uh, begin to institute a tithe in your life. And it may not be a simple thing. That may be a very difficult thing. For me, it was an extremely different th- difficult thing. Now, over time, it hasn't become difficult at all. It's become a pleasure. To the extent that God has, in order to deal with my greed, has even, even now, there will be times where in our business, because of, particularly because of COVID, we don't even get paychecks. And we're just living on almost nothing. And then we finally get a paycheck. And the first thing that we get to do is not go pay overdue bills, which we need to do. It's not go buy groceries, which we need to do. It's we get to write a tithe check and give back to God. So if you're not doing that today, I want you to spend some time this week talking and praying about what does it look like? And you may have to start at a very small amount and work your way there. But it is, listen to me, it is worthy of honor. It is honorable to God to be obedient to him. The second thing I want to challenge you to do is to find a place in this church to serve. If you're here, if this is your church, your home church, the American statistics on serving are awful in American church. About 20% of the congregation in most churches does over 80% of all of the work. That's crazy. It's totally unbiblical. It doesn't make any sense at all. The moment you put your saving faith in Jesus, you were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And at that point, you were given spiritual gifts. The only purpose for those spiritual gifts, according to the Bible, is the edification of the body. Meaning the only reason you were given them at all was to encourage other people with them. It's the only reason you have them. The, the, the church was never meant to be a spectator sport where a few people did the work of ministry and everybody else watched. Now, uh, Emma was talking about earlier that when um, there, there's this thing that's out there, you can, you can Google them. You can get like spiritual gifts tests and stuff to try to figure out what your spiritual gifts are. Um, but, I, you know, I read uh, Swindoll a long time ago about spiritual gifts. And one of the things that I love that he said is this, you, that's backwards. You don't sit around and, and test to try to figure out where you'd be the best fit and then go serve. You just go serve. You just jump in. And in time, your spiritual gifts and where God wants you, will he will lead you to those things as you serve. The best example I have for you is like you're sitting on the outside of the pool, sitting there debating for three hours. What stroke is the best? Should it be the backstroke? Is it the best stroke? I think, I think backstroke is superior. You've never even gotten in the water. Just jump in. It's not about you. 
jump in, serve other people, and in the process of dying to yourself and serving other people, it is amazing the work that God will do in your heart. So this week, I want you to consider, man, am I serving in my local church? Now, some of you are serving in like 19 ministries, so calm down, Turbo. I don't need you. I need the people that are sitting on the pew. Daniel Lopez is going to have a heart attack. (laughs) If you're not serving, serve. God will do tremendous work on your heart while you serve. And I have served in so many various ministries. I just learned that I'm horrible when I'm not serving and God's doing work when I am and it doesn't really matter where it is. Man, I have, I've been blessed mopping floors. I'm not kidding. Blessed. Here's the third. I would say that those first two things, um, learning how to tithe and learning how to serve are just acts of obedience in the local church. It's just normal. They're all throughout the New Testament. They're just foundational items of following Christ and being in community to do those two things. Here's the third one. This is much harder. I'm not even sure you can get to this third one if you're not doing the first two. So, so you need to get those first two. And you need to start working on them as a habit. But here's the third one. And this is where, and I want to talk about this a lot next week, I hope. Um, this is what I think the church is called to do. And when the church is super healthy, this is what it's doing, Okay. What would it look like if all of us were constantly, almost diligently looking for ways to bless people? Just, just on the lookout, like investigating ways to give our stuff away, give our time away, ways to make an impact in our community, around our town, with people that are marginalized, with people that are in need? What would it look like if not one or two people, not church staff or pastors, I mean, an entire church filled with people that were constantly trying to find ways to bless people? I'll tell you what it would look like. It would look like a healthy church. It would look like a move of God. And we could begin to do that. Even this week, you could begin praying through, man, God, would you make me more sensitive to needs that are around me? We've gotten really good as Americans of like at the stoplight, not looking at the guy asking for change, right? Like don't make eye contact, don't make eye contact, don't make eye contact, you won't do anything. We got really good at it. What if we became those bleeding hearts that we hear so much about? The way Jesus was. And we begin to look for ways to make an impact and prayerfully, wisely, with discernment, begin to become generous. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for the people in our church, God. The people that have joined us today, the people that are watching online, God, the people that you have put together in this body of Christ from all walks of life and different ages and different backgrounds, God. And thank you that you've united us with your spirit and your blood. God, I thank you for the work that I see you doing in lives here, people that you're restoring people you're calling back to faith, God. Thank you for growing this church in maturity and depth. Thank you for changing our heart and attacking our our hard hearts. God, we want to live lives that honor you. And that means we have to learn to be generous with everything we have because you gave it to us. God, I ask that you help us to become generous people who live generous lives that honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our prayer team and our elders are going to be up here to pray with you. If you're hurt, if you're sick, if you're in need of prayer, if you're struggling, 
we, we want to pray for you. The Bible wants us to pray for you. We want to pray for you. So yes, you can absolutely use the prayer cards and we'll pray for you this week, but you can come now and pray with someone. If you've never taken a next step, if you've never publicly declared Jesus to be your Lord, we, we want to talk about what a next step looks like. You move as the Lord leads you. We love you.